Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody and welcome back to the podcast for another year. It is a new year. We've got a new intro, a new name and a new look panel. It's all happening here at ESPN HQ. I'm Matt Walsh. Great to be talking to you again. Jake Michaels, uh, the men's footy kicks off in just over a week. You've just finished up at the tennis. Uh, You've had a busy start to the year. Oh, I have. We both had. We were there at the tennis together. Um, busy two weeks. I feel like I'm just recovering from it, to be honest. Uh, probably slept two weeks straight. Uh, trying to watch a little bit of the AFLW in amongst it all and getting set for the men's uh, football to kick off really soon. Back on the podcast. It's all happening. Um, how happy are you with Novak Djokovic's ninth Australian Open win? You're his biggest fan this side of uh, Asia. Well, don't, don't say that too loud because um, it's not the most popular opinion to have in Australia or around the world. But yeah, no, he's a pretty good tennis player. Um, I'm not saying too much else though because there'll be quite a bit more Twitter hate if we if we keep talking about Novak Djokovic. It's very funny once you cover a global event like the, the tennis. The, the Twitter hate does sort of roll in a bit thicker and faster than it does for footy. Well, you're getting people outside of Victoria abusing you, which looks <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, uh, welcome back to uh, Champion Data's Christian Jolly as well. He's back on the pod for another year. Uh, he signed a contract extension with us throughout the offseason because he loves the podcast just that very much and the direction in which we're going. Isn't that right, Christian? Correct. No, I've uh, enjoyed um, the last two or three years we've been together and, yeah, looking forward to another year um, for 2021. Full confidence in the board and the coach at this point. <laughs> yeah, like like the direction where the team's going, and yeah, very good. Well, we're happy one to have you back uh, for another season. Um, but you do you might notice that we are missing one member of the panel this week. Uh, Neil Seawang, who's uh, normally part of part of this group, has left ESPN over the off season. He's pursuing opportunities elsewhere. But uh, we should take a moment to just sort of thank him for what he did for this podcast. He was instrumental in helping it get off the ground. Uh, so I, I know that we're all very thankful to him and, and wish him all the best in his future endeavours. But well said. On, yeah, while we're on the subject of Neil, uh, just because he's not here and can't defend himself as well, I'd like <laughs> to take you guys back to our very, very first episode in 2019. And if you'll remember, we were challenged each other to make one big call for the season. Uh, and Christian, I remember yours was quite uh, not a very big call at all because you... <laughs> It was a you small, the, big call. You had the Suns winning more than one game for the season. Um, Jake, do you remember what yours was? Uh, yeah, I picked Locking Neil to win the Brownlow. I was ah. a, a year too early on that one. So you were a year too early. Well, listen to this from Neil. I, this could be a lot of egg on the face, but my big call for this year is Mason Cox, by the end of the year, will be regarded as one of the elite key forwards in the league. Oh. Neil called Mason Cox being rated elite uh, two years ago, and he's only two years late. Christian, your mob has said that Mason Cox, the lanky Yankee, is in fact an elite player of the competition, uh, and Neil has turned into Neil Stradamus just as he's as he's leaving the podcast. <laughs> so what can you tell us about Mason Cox being rated elite by champion data? Um, yeah, I could probably tell you I'm probably glad Neil's not around to sort of bask in his glory um, <laughs> because, yeah, we might have shot him down in flames when he said that. But um, so, yeah, Mason Cox came out elite. It is, again, just um, putting the clarification out there it was using one measure so using afl player rating points average for 2020 he came up as elite key forward so fifth most rating points of uh fifth most rating points per game of any key forward um and with 58 key forwards across the competition top 10 percent, which is you know top five get get to be elite um and he was in fifth position so again it, it's a single measure it's a it's it's 
yeah, AFL player ratings, um, as I've sort of spoke about on the podcast before, it's a measure we introduced in about 2010 that looks at sort of an equity rating on a on a AFL field. So what, what you do and where you do it has uh, impact on your rating points. Uh, so whether you win the ball yourself and kick it backwards or handball it forwards into the forward 50 all is worth different values. So, again, um, we came up with a measure in, I think, 2010, 2011. Um, by about 2012, 13, we were really, really happy with the measure with players like Cyril Rioli, uh, Nick Natanui and I think even Patrick Dangerfield were coming up quite higher than they were in our original rankings formula. Um, but again, it's always just going to throw up the ones that, you know, that, that sort of people look at it and think it's a glaring issue or an error with Mason Cox. And that was obviously the talk of the town during this off season. But again, just digging a bit deeper into Mason Cox's game and you can see why player rating points like him. So it's all about winning contests in valuable parts of the ground. Mason Cox, one of the best one-on-one contest players, um, you know, doesn't doesn't do a lot of them, but what he's involved, he usually wins. His accuracy was 78%, which was about 20% higher than any of the other four other elite key forwards that he was sort of when being ranked alongside. He's goal. He's, you almost put it in the book. He doesn't Correct. miss. So looking at, his, looking at his ball winning points, he was sort of ranked 19th for key forwards for his ball winning. So a few, few contested marks, but doesn't get a lot around the ground. But mm. fifth for his ball use. So again... To be 19th for winning the ball, but to be able to get the fifth most points out of your usage just shows how well he does use the ball, even if he's just delivering into the forward 50. And you, you think about it, he doesn't, because he probably keeps it simple, he doesn't try to hit yep. the short ones and turn it over in the in the defensive half and things like that that, you know, the good players will. So, again, he's sort of 38th of the 60, uh, of the 58 for points lost from negatives. So, again, he doesn't, doesn't give away a lot of free kicks, doesn't cause a lot of clangers. Um, so it's almost one of those ones, you know, in a – you know, tongue-in-cheek sort of way, you can say he probably doesn't do enough to get the negative rating, you know, to, to lose the rating points, but he just does enough to keep himself in the positive. So, again, using the one measure, he comes up as elite. I don't think we would, you know, roll around town that we've we've nailed the measure and that's, the, you know, that's gospel. So, you know, happy for people not to agree that Mason Cox elite. Um, but again, what just looking saying at... saying is Neil's prediction was wrong. <laughs> well, no, well, Neil's <laughs> prediction was correct because, again, if you're looking at a, a, a value of a player, you know, where he's getting it and what he's doing for your team, Mason Cox has been an elite performer um, when he gets the ball. Um, but again, I, I always go back to player ratings points. The, probably the one player it always missed was Nick Rewalt, who's the complete opposite to Mason Cox. Just works so hard on those lead marks. The rating points, unfortunately, doesn't value lead marks as highly as probably the eye does because we can see the work rate that goes into it. Right. That looks more at the kicker. The kicker has to actually – you can lead all day, but if the kicker's not kicking it to you, um, you're not getting the ball. So, again, so Nick Revolt was – How often was Nick Revolt rated elite? I don't think he ever got into the elite category for a single season. So, again, to say Mason Cox won, Nick Revolt nil, probably doesn't oh. sit – doesn't sit quite right with me, but again, that's why you use these numbers as a guide, and that's why you know we have a lot of numbers to back it up. And sort of you got to you got to dig through the actual, uh, yeah, it, it, the breakdown of the points before you can sort of see. And and again, once I look at the breakdown of the points, I can see why ratings has, uh, has put him high up there. But again, it makes us revisit the ratings and say, hey, are we valuing contested possessions maybe slightly a bit too much over uncontested? And, and it's an ongoing conversation that we have every offseason. Well, there you go. You heard it first here on this podcast. Uh, Mason Cox is a better key forward than Nick Revolt. Um, <laughs> According to Christian Jolly. Quote <laughs> <laughs> him on that one. You can tell no, by one-year contract if you keep going like this. It was a pretty uh, pretty bold call from Neil. I think we did all give him a little bit of stick when he, when he said, um, yeah, can't. Can't deny it now. Well, yes, I think we'll have to go back at some point throughout the year for those who are new to the pod. Um, we'll have to go back and try and revisit the the difference between ranking points and ratings points and how they 
um, jump up and down the order and all that sort of stuff. So we'll have to do that at some point as well throughout the year. But um, thanks for clearing that up, Christian, because um, I've got to say, I was a little bit confused when it first uh, was announced that, but when you kind of break it down into the fact that he does a lot of things quite well and doesn't try to bite off more than he can chew, I guess it makes a lot of sense. And again, the other, the other thing I'll put it, put a big rider on it was only based on the 2020 season. So again, people sort of like the headline of, oh, this player is elite. All we've done is rated those 2020 seasons. So he was elite for a key forward in 2020. We don't have any prediction or, you know, there was no, there was no uh, um, measurement or calculation change to sort of look at how you would go going forward. So mm. again, it's just, it's just a review of his season. It's not a prediction of where he's going. Mm. All right, well, let's move on to uh, well, what actually happened on the weekend, which was the Amy Community Series. We had the one and only week of preseason action. Jake, I might get your thoughts uh, on it first. Firstly, there's a few different rule changes, but firstly, I want to get your thoughts on just having one week of preseason. Do we like that? I mean, clubs had their own scratch matches organised anyway. Why don't we just play two weeks of preseason action? Uh, well, it's a good point. Um, I'm sure the the broadcasters would be pretty keen for it. I don't I don't actually know why we don't. Um, but I don't. I think two matches, whether you have one as a proper preseason or at a scratch match, or two as as a preseason comp, I think that's a good amount. I think anything more than that starts to get a little bit too much, and anything less is kind of you know, the players do need a bit of time to get going. But I actually thought the standard for the for the most part was pretty decent. I didn't think, I, I reckon I felt in previous years that the, that you can tell that a lot of players have been really rusty. Mm. I actually thought there was quite a lot of high, high standard football being played throughout the, throughout the matches. And I mean, you get it because you, you have a lot of players are only playing a half or that sort of thing. And there's so, still spots up for grabs at this point of the year too. Yeah. They're going to be fresher and that sort of stuff, but thought the standard was good. Thought, um, thought, thought there was a lot of younger players that really impressed. I guess the biggest talking point and the biggest disappointment is the amount of injuries that we've seen over the over the last few days, and um, and not just the amount, but the the big names as well. That it's it's a real shame to see them to see them go down and um, and look like they're going to miss a, a fair chunk of footy. The unfortunate part is it's it is part of footy. I mean, injuries do happen, whether they happen in round eighteen, the prelim final, or or preseason. Like they have to play at least one preseason game, and, and unfortunately, injuries do occur. They do happen, but when they happen before the season's even started, um, and particularly when you've you've got players, um, you know, particularly someone like Cam Rayner who may miss the whole year, we're not yeah. sure. We're not 100 percent sure as yet what, what the what the result is from his injury yesterday. But um, you know, it is a massive shame. At least when you're in the season, it's like well, it's part of the season. But when you have it before you've even started the practice game. Yeah, I think that stings a little bit more. And you can mm. tell by the reaction with Rainer. I actually thought um, after the match, I thought Chris Fagan looked like he was he's the one that had done his knee. I mean, he looked he looked distraught. Didn't he? Um, it looked like Rainer was uh, consoling Fagan at one yeah. point because yeah. Fagan came over and put his shoulder, his hands over his shoulder, and I sort of you saw Rainer sort of go, "No, it's all right. You know, don't feel too bad for me." Mm. I saw that as well. Just it. I've, I've got big raps on Chris Fagan as a coach. And I just look at that and just think that's that's the human side of coaching right there. And that's what I think Chris Fagan seems to be. He doesn't look to me as a ranting, raving coach. He seems no. to have a really good relationship with the players. And just that, probably the same bit of vision um, you saw of just him standing next to Rainer. You could really see he was feeling for him. But you could see the player had genuine concern of, I don't want to, I don't want my coach to be feeling sad about me. Like yeah. it was, yeah, it was a very uh, touching moment, I thought. Very. Uh, Jake, while we're on the preseason, the stand rule copped a lot of attention the first week of the scratch matches in particular because uh, there were some pretty dicey 50s handed out to some pretty oh, pedestrian, I guess, uh, movement on the mark. Uh, firstly, yep. I, I just want your opinion. Do you like a rule change like this where a player has to stand fully on the mark and, and what it opens up in terms of inboard kicks and all that? And 
And how do you think coaches will go about exploiting it? Because we know that coaches do exploit this sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. I think um, our good friend Rowan Connolly, who, who writes for us and, and will be on the podcast again throughout the year, he wrote a really nice piece for us uh, earlier in the week um, about this and, and, and sort of talking about how it's never as bad or it's never as good as it might seem. And I think it really sums it up well because the first couple of instances we saw, everyone was saying this is the worst rule I've ever seen. And I was, I was probably in that camp where I thought, oh, I don't particularly like this too much. But we have seen that it is sort of opening the game up a little bit more. Um, and players are adjusting quickly. We haven't seen – we didn't see a massive amount of – I thought we'd be having a 50-metre penalty every every five minutes from it. But you're not seeing that happen. Players adjust really quickly. And I think, as you say, coaches are going to adjust. But I think I think in time, it's going to open the game up. I think we've already kind of seen that. I oh, see. Oh, interesting you say you'll think it'll open up. And I agree with you in the short term. I think that, that it is possible that that's what's going to happen. But – I mean, long-term, we've said it on this podcast every single year, coaches don't want 100 points scored against them. No matter what no. the AFL tries to implement, they will try and constrict and restrict other teams and players from scoring goals. And if a man on the mark on the wing means that the player can kick inboard, what's going to happen is the teams are going to flood their, their defenders to the inboard kick. And they'll say, you know what, we'll leave it to a two-on-two down the line. And if you want to go down the line, great. But that's a 50-50 contest for us. But we'll... Mm. we'll we'll tighten up the middle and, and, and just get another stoppage in the middle. And that's what I can kind of see happening as well. I love the fact that teams were taking off that, that 45 degree angle kick um, high risk, high reward. You can sort of open the game up and then you open up the entire 50 ahead of you. But if you turn it over, then the other team, if they've got some decent dashing halfbacks or wingers, they're, they're going the other way just as quick. I mean, Christian, your boffins would have been looking at, at this rule and maybe the, I know it's only been a week of official sort of statistic counting for the AFL, but um your boffins would have been looking at these sort of rules and, and, and the, the number of rebound 50s or number of running bounces. Is there something that you guys have noticed early from this, this stand rule and what it's brought about? Yeah, well, the first thing I noticed, I mean, I, I worked on the game Thursday night and you could sort of see the way it was panning out. You know, when you sort of you work at a game and you sort of know what everyone's already going to be talking about from that game and Carlton St. Kilda was so high scoring and everyone was going to jump on it was all about the new man on the mark rule. I think that game had, uh, between them, they kicked nine goals from centre bounce clearances. So basically it had nothing to do with the new rule. They were just waltzing <laughs> out of stoppages. So again, I think the rule did have a impact overall across uh, the round. It's hard to make any grand statements again, because it's based on one round of footy and everyone's played one opponent and one way mm. of playing. But the big thing for me was, I think every team had come out for this one week of preseason and were just worried about their offense. It was just worried about, all right, when we get the ball, this is what we want to do. We kind of want to stop the other team from doing it, but we've never seen pressure numbers so low. So there was just there wasn't that manic pressure on the ball carrier. Um, you know, we sort of it look was at very pressure. much the uh, the NBA All Star game. Correct. Off. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the pressure rating is usually about one eighty eight, one eighty nine across a game. The average for this week was one seventy one, um, which is a huge drive. There's a big difference between ten rating points, let alone eighteen. Uh, sorry, pressure points, let alone eighteen. So, oh. to drop from you know one eighty nine to one seventy one, and the post clearance pressure was one fifty nine. So that's where you really have to work to apply pressure. Uh, you know, pre clearance pressure is pretty easy to put on because you're already standing there. A guy grabs the ball, you put your arm out, you pressure him. Once the ball breaks away from the stoppages, that's when you've got to really chase and get to the play. Mm. There wasn't a lot of that. There wasn't a lot of manic pressure. So again, I felt like, and going back to your point, Matt, yeah, so far we've seen what every team wants to do with the ball. I don't think anyone's shown us their cards of what they're going to do defensively to, to stop this yet. So 100%. again, you know, the usual numbers are up. The scores were up higher uh, slightly. It was, you know, 
it was slightly easier to get it from um, back 50 to forward 50, but still only about at the rate of uh, where we were five years ago, 2016, 2017. So again, we have it's not taking us back to early 2000s where it was uh, 35% of you know defensive 50 chains were going on the foot, you know, one in three were going on the four line, still hovering just above 20%. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was again 30, 36 percent sorry, 36% of possessions were won from a contest this week. Again, usually we're up around 41, 42, so it was a lot more open open play, a lot more uncontested possessions. So yeah, hard to make big calls, but I think that was the biggest one for me is every club just wanted to work on their offense this week. Um, and then, yeah, we'll, we'll start why to see the defense. To, why wouldn't you want to work show on your defensive card? I, th- I think you do, but you don't want to show your card. So, again, it's... But then why got, do you, you want to show your attacking card? Why well, you've only got 120 minutes to work it out. So it's sort of like, well, this is, again, what we're all talking about. The, the biggest change in the rules this year is the man on the mark rule. And it's mm. it's what you can do with ball in hand now. So I think that's just what every club wants to do. They, they know their defensive structures. They've probably been a lot of the coaches, you know, there is no new coach this year. So... A lot of the coaches have at least got a year or two of planning with their defensive stuff. This offensive ball movement is really new because of what we can do now that we get a mark. Mm. Um, and, you know, the team they got to practice it the most was Port Adelaide, who ended up taking 190 marks against Adelaide, which is a, would have been a world record, is a world record. Um, but, again, the most in a home and away game was 181, which was about 2006. So to have 190 marks and 199, was, 190 ways to practice. Was that the Joel Bowden game, the Richmond-Adelaide game? It was. Yeah. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was I remember watching that. Yeah, Richmond, uh, Richmond basically invented the backwards kick that day and just knew that they couldn't outscore Adelaide, so they were just going to take the heat off the game. But, yeah, that was, um, yeah, the Port Adelaide-Adelaide game. That was one where just like Adelaide could not stop Port Adelaide once they took a mark because they were just able to chip it around and find um, targets everywhere. But it does, it, it reminds me very much of um, Hawthorne's three-peat. This is the one thing I noticed with Hawthorne in their three-peat as well. It's just they always took the easy option. They always they were always a high kick-to-handball ratio team. We, we've spoken about it before. They were never really big on winning clearances or contested possessions, but it was more like when we get the ball in hand, they were able to move it up the field so easy. And a lot of that was just those basic 15-metre kick. Just take it when it's there. If someone's calling for it 15 metres ahead of it, use that player. And Hawthorne did it well. Probably other clubs, you know, would go long down the line in that situation. We saw a lot more of those short targets used mm. uh, this week. So, I get it. Watching it, it, it took me back to, all right, this is what Hawthorne was so dominant at and won three premierships with. It seems to be something that, you know, all 18 clubs are going to be able to do this year. Well, yeah, would you rather kick the ball 20 and retain possession or kick it 50 and do it to a 50-50? I mean, yeah. I, Hawthorne made it look very simple. I think it's very it's very easy to forget how Hawthorne played and, and how successful they were because we've now had you know, a new dynasty. But, I mean, they won three three flags in a row for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the big furor with footy fans, when you're looking at a new rule so quickly and in isolation is, does the punishment fit the crime? And I think that um, the, the rule's kind of not a bad one because you're right, it does sort of open up options for players. But the punishment, man, 50 metres for moving one one literal one foot off your mark or turning around, you know, like uh, like what happened um, in that Frio West Coast scratch match, kind of weird. So, guys, I, I challenge you throughout the week in the lead up to this podcast to come up with a new rule um, or a new punishment, rather, something for in between what a free kick should be and a 50-metre penalty, because surely there's got to be some middle ground somewhere, Jake. Yeah, well, I think it's... I, I mean, I'm not saying... I've, I've heard this discussed quite a bit over the last few years, and, I, and I'm all for having a 25- or a 30-metre 
penalty instead of a 50-meter penalty. Because if, as you say, a 50-meter penalty, especially for some really minor infringements, whether it's you know um, getting too close to the to the kicker on the to to the man on the mark, that sort of stuff. It's like, is it really? Is it really the same as if you deck someone after they've taken a mark? Like that is a 50 meter penalty. I'm all for that being 50, but some of these really minor indiscretions, I think, could be 25 or 30. Because the way I look at it is, if you're if you're 100 anywhere that that you're 100 meters out from goal, the 50 meter penalty gives you a set a, a, a chance at scoring. And you know what percent of the ground would be 100 meters from your goal? Two you know? thirds. You know, so it's it's, it's quite the, almost most positions on the ground. You're going to be you're massively advantaged. A 30 meter penalty or a 25 meter penalty still gives you an advantage. It's basically a, a short kick up the ground for you, but yeah, without the, without go on finish. <laughs> no, but without making it so significant for the defensive team. I agree in principle, but I think. Again, I'm trying to think from a coach's perspective. And the first thing that I'm thinking is I'm instructing my players to give away professional 25s if you're in a certain part of the ground. If you need to hold, hold a player up, um, you know, because they're getting, they've got two out the back, but if you can sort of tug on there and then play stops and then you're giving away 25 metres, I would 100% give away 25 metres yeah, any day of the week. In that. If, you're, if you're tugging on a player's sure then that should be a 50 because if you're halting play that's 50 i'm talking about a 25 meter penalty could be taking a step off the line instead of it being a 50 as we're seeing or running just that half a meter too close to the kicker as, as before they've taken off on their mark if you're touching the player who's who's got the ball then that's a 50 as normal right okay the minor things that yep. i think should be 25 or 30. I, I think jake's nailed it and I, I was big on that as well the the encroaching on space penalties they, they should be 25 something small you know you've accidentally run too close to the player and you know after time the, the player with the ball is not even looking at the guy that's run past this moving on the mark rule that's just more about a space correct if the physical aspect of it once you touch the player that's taken a mark if you hit him late that's the traditional 50 but i think i'm with jake anything that's based on yeah encroaching the space or getting too close should be maybe a 25 meter or 30 meter penalty. The other one that crossed my mind, I just, I can't, you know, cause you, you set us the challenge and I was trying to think of one to be creative. You could, um, but again, this might not work for the offensive team, but once it happens, the offensive team can now nominate who the kicker is. So, um, you know, Jared Witts has taken a mark on the wing and someone's moved on the mark and Jared Witts now can go, all right, I don't want to kick it. I'll give it to Jack Lacocious. Problem with mm. that is if Jack Lacocious is 40 meters away, you've got to wait for him <laughs> to get, you know, it, it'll screw goal coast. Cause then the defense will get back. But, Again, besides the 25-meter penalty, which, um, you know, we'll let Jake have that idea, but that was the one that crossed my mind. The other one would be yeah, a, a nominated kick where you could actually give the ball to someone else and say, hey, now that you've, you know, you've moved on the mark, so now I can give the ball to this bloke yeah. again. But I that's like that. I combine them. like a penalty in, in soccer. Like, you, you don't, the person who wins it doesn't have to take it anyway. Yeah, yeah, I don't mind that. Um, I had I was a little bit left of field from this. I, I watch a bit of hockey and NHL. And they have penalties, and their penalty is a player gets sent off for two minutes. So I was thinking for two minutes or four minutes or five minutes of game time, if you're giving away a stupid encroaching the man mark or, or you know, or a, you know you bump someone afterwards, you, as the player that commits the foul, gets sent off. So it's 18 versus 17 for two or four minutes of game time. So it's not like a it's... a bigger penalty, though, than just a Well, 50? this is what I'm wondering. I'm, I'm sort of trying to hypothesise, but... It, does having one extra player on the ground give you 
too much of an advantage or is it less of an advantage than a 50 meter penalty from say 80 or, or 90 meters out so i mean that's what i kind of looked at and i thought well that could be interesting in in that yeah you do the crime but you, you get two minutes less and you might be able to pour on two goals but you might not be able to get any goal and maybe that's the fairer um the fair and that's, and in, stack- and that's instead of a 50 meter penalty that's instead of a 50 meter penalty then i go back to what you said before about players doing that professional i reckon that was where you'd see professional that would happen professionally because a player mm. could you could get your, you could get a weaker player to give that give it away you know mm. um but also when you've got so many players on on a field you know 18 v 18 if you go to 18 v 17 you're not going to notice as much of a difference as if it was basketball five, five on four. four you know yeah. that is a huge difference but 18 17 i wonder how much difference you'd find and how would the six 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 work yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> hey, I, uh, I came up with the challenge, and um, well, I we, like it. I like to some, nominate a kicker one as well. Yeah, we've got some good ideas there. So, Steve Hocking, let, let us know, and we'll, we'll take our commission check in the mail. Um, a couple of other new things: the length of quarters is, is back to normal. And um, Christian, you, you did the Thursday night game, so you would have noticed it quite plainly. But the first two quarters, especially, were like thirty-seven and thirty-six minutes. Um, any reason for that? And what's what's the deal there? I mean. Goals, goals are always going to uh, increase it. So that's, you know, that's the first one right there. But for to me, the um, one that probably no one sort of notices, but um, you definitely do when you're working on a game, is the time between the goal being recorded and the centre bounce happening afterwards. Yes. Um, so I think that's crept up. It crept up from, you know, comparing 2016 to 2020. Last year, it crept up by uh, 19 seconds from 44 to 65 um, in between. And again, I think a lot of that was by design because the games were shorter uh broadcasters already paid their rights expecting a full season to be played and 120 minutes games of footy so they padded they had extra um extra time for breaks and extra time between goals just to try to you know increase the length of matches so i was surprised to see that continue uh, i think we're still up to uh, 55 56 seconds um, between goal and bounce across this round um it's too long. and it's been steady across you know from 2012 to 16, it was about 44 to 46 seconds. So, again, it doesn't seem like lots. It's, it's 10, 11 seconds. But when you have got six or seven extra goals, that's an easy minute uh, added to the quarter right there. So, uh, yeah, very long quarters. I think, um, again, we've been doing um, six weeks of AFLW and been used to these 15-minute uh, quarters. And I worked quarter one, St Kilda Carlton. I think I wrote down an edit and had 32-27 or something written down. I thought 32 minutes shouldn't be a number <laughs> we're writing down for one quarter. But... after every quarter. Are you yeah, coming around like to the that. idea of shorter quarters then? I don't know. I, yeah, I'm torn. I, I just feel like there is too much time off. I, I, I feel like the game length is fine, 20 minutes a game. But some of the time off that I've noticed, I, um, you know, again, you only notice the behind. I'm working the game. Well, I reckon bulked up a lot of the quarters. I reckon a lot of the behinds, um, the kick-ins seem to, I don't know, I reckon once the bloke has the ball in the goal square, you just start ticking the time down then like why is yeah. time still long? I know yeah I know that's going to help uh, teams protect the lead late in games but again I, I find all the time off is really something I notice again yeah. working on the game is why is the clock stopped for so long here or um, things like that so yeah it, to me it's yeah the broadcasters probably get to drive you know how much ad time they have but that's a good point what the umpires can control is yeah probably just the time on and time off rule we, um, speaking of the uh, speaking of the clock did you guys see the, the count up clock that they had at the north the North, um, it was Hawthorne. They played the Hawthorne game. They had the, the count up. It looked like the, the goose, like someone had got their phone on the big screen 
was counting up. Did you guys see that? I didn't see. I, at, at venue? Yeah, at the venue. Yeah, I didn't see. Yeah, got to check it out. Um, while we're on the hard-hitting topics of <laughs> count-up clocks and, clocks and all this sort of other stuff, uh, there was a hard hit on Thursday night. Uh, Zach Williams has been given a ban for his new club, Carlton, after... Well, he jumped off the ground, chose to bump and got the head of Hunter Clark, Jake, and he got given a week. The Blues think they're going to challenge it because Clark got straight up again, played out the rest of the game okay. But I don't know about you, but I'm okay with players being given one-game bans for bumping the head. Yeah, um, I think he deserves a week. And to be honest, I reckon he's lucky he didn't get two weeks. Um, You know, there's no need to do it, especially in a pre-season game. And I don't care that Hunter Clark got up and continued playing. I'm sick of us always going on about, oh, but he managed to So if if he's from that exact same thing, if he's knocked out and doesn't get back up, how many weeks is Williams getting? Three or four weeks? This is what I mean. It doesn't make any sense. And we've been saying it for a long time. But... He should be get. He's, I don't. I don't think they should even be challenging. Challenging. I should think they should just say, "Look, you got a week. You shouldn't have done it. it. Was stupid. Sit out round one and come back round two. I don't think it's even worth challenging. I don't see why. Uh, if he gets off, I think the, the whole system is absolutely cooked. Well, the, the issue is the AFL's sort of reasoning, their little table for, you know, is it uh, intentional or is it, um, what's the other it's word? Reckless. Re- yeah. Well, is it reckless, intentional, or uh, what's the third one off the top of my head? Um, accidental or whatever it is. And then the impact, is it low, medium, high or severe? And then the contact, is it high or to the body or the groin? Well, it's reckless. It's well, high. The, the thing is, you don't know because there's no, the grading system is so um thing is, you don't, area you don't need a grading system to look at that and think, yeah, that's not a good look. That's well, not something That's what I'm need. saying. Yeah, I think the grading system... Season. It's like, well, how do you know whether it's high or medium impact? Like, yeah, sure, low or medium impact. He got up straight away, yeah, but you've seen with Shane Tuck and all this sort of CTE news over the last 12, 18 months, any head knock is a bad one for this for this game yeah. and for any contact sport in general. So I have no I have no problem with if the AFL came out even after this decision. Um, you know, I know it looks bad when you do it after, but even if they came out after this decision and said any bump to the head where it's intentional because it minimum was, two weeks. Minimum, minimum one or two weeks or whatever, regardless of the impact and the, and the outcome. Yeah. I feel um, like the, like the, the state of play as well just probably made it a bit easier for me. He, he disposed of the ball. It wasn't like they were on a collision course trying to win the ball and Clark got there first and he changed to bump late or he just he kicked the ball away and Williams jumped up and, you know, sort of hit him in the head. So to me, I feel like, especially for those after-disposal ones, where the guys already take a possession of the ball, got rid of it, they need to be prick-detected the most because once you've kicked the ball, you don't expect someone to come flying at your head like that sort of thing. So I feel like context of play, we don't talk about a lot. Like I feel like a bump when you're both going for the ball compared to when someone has the ball and you choose to bump instead of tackle is worse than the initial Mm. one that I just said. So, again, because it was an after-disposal free kick, he'd already kicked the ball. I I felt it was an easy week to give. Yeah, I I agree. Um, But, uh, look, it's a new year. Fans are going to get irate about some things. And you know what? It's just good to have the AFL uh, back on our screens. Uh, from It is, but I think, you know, just, just on that point, it's, it is, it's not a good look at any time to be doing that. But when you're doing it in pre-season, it's I know. Yeah. Very unnecessary. I think he knew straight away. I think you could tell by the look on his face, he knew straight away that probably thinking, why the hell did I just do that? He's a bit um, of over-exuberance, new club. I think just, so. Just, yeah, yeah. It's not in his nature, is it? It's not, he's not that type of player, I don't think, anyway. So. No. No. And, and the big shame is the Blues could really use him uh, round one against the Tigers because uh, what, what have they lost, Jake? Something like nine or ten in a row or something like that in round one? 
Yeah, long. I've kind of lost track. Um... <laughs> uh, anyway, we'll move on. We haven't got long to go in the first episode of the podcast for the year. Jake, I want to leave you with one last question, and, and Christian, you can jump in on this as well. But my final question to you guys is, and this is after watching the dogs uh, take care of the D's on uh, last night, was it? Um, during the Amy, sorry, on Monday night during the Amy Community Series. Uh, can a bulldog win the Brownlow? Because if you look at the stat lines and looked at how these guys played on on Monday, um, the spread of players, Jake, was incredible. And the it's just going to be so tough for someone like a Jackson McRae or a Bontempelli or an Adam Trelaw to win a uh, to win in a midfielders award like this when he's got so many other good players in the team. Do you agree? I agree that there's a lot of players there, but at the same time, I I also believe that you're not going to win a Brownlow if you're not winning games. And the dogs are going to win. You'd think the dogs are going to be winning more games than, than they lose this year. Um, I think someone like McRae, you know, wins. You look at the last couple of winners, um, you know, Lockie Neal, Tom Mitchell won it a couple of years back. Big ball winners, um, high, high accumulators of the ball. Jack McRae's that type of player. Uh, so is Adam Trelaw, really. Um, we don't know if he's going to be playing round one. But I look at someone like, I think of all the Dogs players, I think McRae is the most likely to, to win it. Um, Bont and Pally, probably a better player. But um, I feel like McRae probably has a bit more of that consistency where he's consistently getting, he'll have a, he'll have a lot of games where he'll have 30-plus touches. Um, and we know that that's what the umpires are sort of looking for. Mm. Um, if, if McRae adds a few more goals to, to what he does, I think he's definitely a chance. I, I certainly wouldn't be saying, I wouldn't be putting a line through the dogs having a Brownlow medalist this year. Christian? Yeah, again, I sort of, you always hear the talk of, yeah, play, you know, other players taking votes off other players in their team. But again, on the same, you sort of look at the Brownlow and there is, there's certain players that the umpires just seem to notice more. So again, if Bont, McRae and Trelaw are dominating every game, but the umpires just seem to, you know, just be drawn towards Bont's game more. You, you'll start to see that in the vote. So I think we saw it with Brayshaw at Melbourne uh, a couple yes. of years ago. I think we thought Gorn was a chance and all Oliver might still vote of him. Brayshaw was clearly the one the umpires were keen on and, you know, uh, kept noticing him each week. So there is a little bit of human bias in it. So, again, I, I think that, yeah, definitely a Bulldog could win it. And you could find that, yeah, whenever Bontempelli and Trelaw are both playing best on ground, Bontempelli mm. might just get the three, you know, slightly more than... Um, Central law, just because, as I said, humans are doing it. And, you, you sort of and this is what happens. We, we said it last year with, you know, something like Dangerfield and Mitch Duncan. They have identical games. You know Dangerfield's getting three votes. Like, just the umpires are not, they're probably not doing it on purpose, but just in the back of their mind, they're probably noticing Dangerfield touching the ball more so than Cam Guthrie or... or yeah, and some of them, some of them, you, you start to realize whether it takes him five touches. You know, you notice Dangerfield as soon as he gets the ball, but it might take you Guthrie ten touches for you to go, oh, geez, he's actually played well today, Guthrie. Like, and the commentators do the same thing. They'll, they'll, you know, some players I'll notice playing well in quarter one, whereas it'll take him three quarters. Ago, oh, he's actually had an impact today. Hey, so. Jake, oh, he's had twenty six touches. I haven't even noticed him. Yeah. Remind us of your theory that you have linking the Brownlow to well, post match interviews because I've got another well, one no, for you I, after this. We have. I have two theories about the Brownlow. One is, and it kind of goes back to Brayshaw's a good example. Players that poll well in the Brownlow generally have a distinct look or feature about them as to why they poll well in the Brownlow. So Brayshaw, classic example, has the helmet on. He does stand out. He stands out from that point of view. You notice Brayshaw when he has the ball because he has the helmet. You know, um, players like 
I used to say this a lot, like when Gary Ablett won, you know, he was the ball player that stood out. Chris Judd, ball stood out. Dane Swan, covered in tackle. Dustin Martin, covered in tackle. Nat White, <laughs> the, the long-flowing hair. These players at fault, Matt Prittis as well, these players all have that distinct look about them. Unfortunately, yep. someone like Lockie Neal, who you call the most vanilla man in football. I don't say really... he's the most vanilla man in football. He's a <laughs> vanilla sorry, player. Mitchell, he's, he's, a, he's a great... Back, like vanilla is a great flavor, but he's he there's nothing <laughs> dusty like or um you know goods like or or sort of you know he's, he's he's not exceptional at one thing, he's a great accumulator, as you said. Um, no disrespect to Lockie, we love Lockie exception. on this podcast, we love him on this podcast, but um, v- vanilla is probably fan. not right welcome word. anytime, Lockie, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I have that sort of uh, that sort of theory, but the other one, as you said, is around post-match interviews. I mean, the, the broadcasters generally, generally will talk to the man of the match that in their eyes. And I think if the umpires are walking off and they're, they're not sure, and you see you see Dustin Martin being interviewed by Channel 7, then you probably think, oh, yeah, he probably was best on ground. We'll give him the three. <laughs> I reckon there's a high correlation between post-match interview and the three votes. That get, is... on, get on it, Christian. Check it out for us. That's... Um... <laughs> There you go, one of Jake Michael's finest. I, the one I like, if I were a player, this is what I'd do. If I was at the bottom of the pack with with a couple of other players and the ball was there, I'd make a point of grabbing the ball and giving it back to the umpire. Yeah, like, and a lot of them do that the too. Footy. Yeah, here's the footy. Just uh, This was me, bottom of the pack. Here I am again, got my hands on the ball again. Dangerfield's one that's always – you see, you see him always talking to the umpire before yeah. they bounce the ball. I reckon he's probably just saying, you know, hey, mm-hmm. go, just keep an eye on me today. You know, I'm feeling good. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> anyway, you can um, yourself from a one vote to a two, do that three or four times, <laughs> and that's the difference in the end. <laughs> All right. We're one episode into the year. We're already talking rubbish. Um, Christian, thank you for, for re-signing again and joining us uh, throughout the year. We look forward to your inputs uh, throughout the season. Uh, it's good to have you back. It will be fun, yep. It will be good. And Jake, uh, as always, good talking crap with you about footy. Uh, We'll be back next week to preview the year in in some shape or form. Um, As Jake said, we've got a couple of special guests lined up throughout the year that we're looking to get on. Uh, We might announce some more of those uh, later down the track, but Ron Connolly is definitely one of those. And just because we don't have footy tips in the name of the podcast anymore, it was more of a mouthful issue than anything else. Uh, We do still have a link with the footy tips app. So make sure you please get your competition sorted, get your tips in um, footytips.com.au or the app. Uh, I know that Jake, you'll be looking to win the tipping again this year after did you you win it last year? You got to get your tips in early because you, you, then you forget otherwise, you know, I forget all the time. Everyone away. Everyone waits to the last five seconds, and then the servers are strained. Yeah. And get them in <laughs> earlier. The, the servers are the best in the world. Thanks, Jake. We know. We know <laughs> what the. We know what the the games are now. We've seen preseason, so there's no excuses. Get the yes. tips in now. Uh, ahead of round one. It's exciting. Yes, but uh, as always, uh, thanks for joining us, guys. We will speak to you each and every week throughout the year. Uh, we'll speak to you in the next one. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.